quick aside, I was in um, Tajikistan in the Afghan border, and I posted that on Facebook. And a friend of mine direct messaged me, a friend of mine from high school, and said, are you all right? As I'm sitting there splitting a bottle of wine with like three other travelers, you know, next to a wonderful river. Yeah, I'm fine. No problem. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 429. L.A. is home to the third largest oil field in the United States. And in fact, an oil derrick sits on the property of Beverly Hills High School and produces 400 barrels a day, which earns a school about $300,000 a year in royalties. The rich getting richer. Education nowadays looks drastically different than it did even when I was in high school, and we're talking about 15 years ago. And the thing that I love about education in today's world is that it can be done while getting to lead your dream lifestyle, as opposed to having to sit in a classroom and be location dependent all the time. And that's why I'm super excited to partner up with Oregon State eCampus, because they offer 70 online programs that you can choose from. You can advance your degree in a variety of different fields, anything from psychology to Spanish to environmental science, all while getting to live wherever you want. So for example, one of their students, Chris Clark, and I absolutely love this, Chris is working towards his business degree online while he and his girlfriend start a new adventure in a new U.S. city every three months because she is a travel nurse and because Chris is doing his degree all online, he's able to go with her and experience a new U.S. city every three months, which is pretty sweet. So if you're interested in doing a similar thing, pursuing a degree while getting to travel, go check out ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash peanuts. You'll get to see why Oregon State eCampus is ranked number five in the entire U.S. by U.S. News and World Report. You can do that by going to ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash peanuts. If you use that special link, I'll get a little love from the OSU people. So go do that ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash peanuts. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who is known as a nomad attorney who in the last two years has ventured through Pakistan and Iraq, driven from LA to Alaska, and maybe most impressively, took the Trans-Siberian Railroad in the winter, and who just published his third novel, He Who Fights with Monsters. I'm tired just reading all that out loud. Mark White's Mark, thanks for joining me. Huge welcome. Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me on the show. This is a real honor. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time now and really enjoying it. Well, we appreciate it. And that's always the the most fun for us is people who have listened and, and get the idea of the show and then are doing cool stuff themselves. And then we can turn around and have you on the show. So for us, it's an honor as well to get to have listeners come on the show and tell their story. And one of the things that struck me, Mark, and you know, as I've just been doing a little research, we've been talking a little bit here is this idea 
of being an attorney and getting to travel so much, I'm sure the biggest question you get asked is, wait, wait, like, you're an attorney. How can you travel so much? Because I've heard of a lot of careers that people have been, that, and they've been able to be nomadic, right? That, that kind of maybe fit people's perceptions. Graphic designer, oh, you work online, you could do it anywhere. But attorney is a new one. How is it possible? Walk us through this, how this even started and, and how you're able to balance all this. Well, it's really more of a lifestyle than going on vacation. Uh, you know, most people, Americans, they go away for one or two weeks and they sort of indulge themselves, eat too much, drink too much, um, get off the grid. And for me, I'm traveling and I'm working. I think that's what a lot of the graphic designers and programmers are doing too. Uh, for me, especially because of the uh, serious nature of the uh, cases I handle, my clients, it's important for me to be on, on top of everything. So be quick about returning calls and emails. Uh, and in fact, maybe because of uh, overcompensating, I'm, my clients tell me I'm actually better than other attorneys about returning uh, emails and such. Um, the only downside is I got to stay connected almost all the time. Uh, so I think uh, as far as going on remote hikes or visiting remote islands um, could be done, but really only two or three days max and usually over a weekend. Um, but otherwise, I have to make sure I'm on the grid, um, which is easy nowadays because the world is is so connected i mean i i i get this question a lot i'll be in mongolia or you know i'll be in in Afri africa like, how are you posting on facebook how are you taking calls i'm like everyone's got a got a cell phone everyone's got you know internet um most everywhere i mean i'll go to a, a small town in mongolia and 4g so um it's it's actually it's it's not a problem and it's been uh, been easy for me but um, it's about, I follow the rules of my profession. It's pretty strict. Um, for instance, there's a special way to sign declarations so that they remain legal if I'm not in the state of California. Um, make sure things are filed properly and all the boxes are ticked. Um, I really just kind of have this philosophy very modernly that, um, we're professionals and it's like when you're in college, you're given an assignment and a deadline and nobody's looking over your shoulder you just have to have it in on time and quality, uh, and nobody cares how you arrive at that. And it should be the same way for us as professionals. We're adults. People are hiring us. I mean, even if you have a job, you shouldn't need to be in an office with a boss supervising you. Um, if you can't get things done on time and in a quality fashion, then you know why did they hire you? So um, it's this trust as a professional. So while people may have the idea, you know that that I'm out in these places, you know, all the time, um, just having fun. I'm really, I take it seriously. Um, and honestly, there are some days that even though I'm in Taiwan or in Indonesia where I'm sitting, uh, in my, in my hotel room all day or in an internet cafe all day with Wi-Fi getting my work done, the difference being that when the work is done, I'm in the, Indonesia as opposed to, you know, Los Angeles. So. Right. Right. Well, how, so how long did that take you to figure out then? Because obviously you've got a pretty good system set and you've been doing it for a few years now. When you first kind of ventured down this path of saying, wait a second, I could do this like or I could do a lot of this virtually. You know, I'm sure there's still maybe small chunks you can't that you have to be back from. We could talk about that in a little bit of like scheduling. But from when you first got this inkling of like, all right, I can do this. I've done this long enough. I understand how to be a professional. I know what I can do remotely and what I can't to then actually, 
I, I don't know, starting this lifestyle, or was there a starting point, I guess is what I'm trying to ask too. If you said, I'm going to first start by going here and testing it out. Walk us through the, the beginning processes of becoming location independent while being an attorney. I worked up to it, uh, and I was terrified at first. So I started my practice in 2008, and I think for the first two years, I didn't travel anywhere because I was building the practice. The first trip I took um, was actually in the beginning of 2011. I went to Ireland, so super connected, you know, first world country, easy, uh, for one week. And as I said, I was terrified. Oh, my God, everything's going to go to hell in in that one week. Um, And indeed, I had a lot of work to do, and there were, uh, at that time, there were still kind of internet cafes around. And I remember spending a couple of days in internet cafes writing up, um, writing up motions and filing them. Uh, and the court, the federal court had a electronic filing at the time. State court in California did not, but actually implemented it about a year ago. Um, and indeed, uh, my system was very primitive at that point. You're wondering, Internet Cafe, why didn't I bring my computer? Yeah, exactly. Why didn't I bring my computer? <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just had this idea it would be stolen somewhere. But, I mean, everyone travels with their computer now. And um, it worked out. I got everything filed, ended up winning the case. Um, as I said, it's about staying on top of things. And, you know, when, when every, after that day spent in the Internet Cafe, I went and had some Guinness. But um, as... As I traveled more, I began to go away longer. And the most important thing was nothing had had gone wrong. Uh, knock on wood. I mean, and to this day, nothing has gone wrong because I stay on top of things and I have backup plan after backup plan. I don't know how much detail you want to go me to go into, but basically, I started figuring things out, bringing my computer along, using the Wi-Fi. Uh, backing my stuff out, uh, my all my documents up in the cloud, making sure I can access them from not just my computer, but my phone using OneDrive, uh, figuring out a system where um, I, all my calls would go to my phone wherever I am in the world, forwarding to my Skype number, because at that time, getting an international plan was super expensive. Um, and it gets easier and easier. In fact, I just looked at, uh, I have T-Mobile and I just saw they have, um, it's gotten cheaper and cheaper to get an international plan. It's almost to the point where I don't have to buy a local SIM anymore. Um, as far as, uh, receiving documents, I have a virtual office. They tell me when I get mail, they will scan it in and email it to me. So I don't need to worry about checking my mail anymore. Um, I have a network of independent contractors. So just like I am a lawyer, um, I have people I use who are also independent. So back in, a lawyer in 1970 would have a, a physical office and a staff of people who do the mailing and calls, et cetera. I have the same thing, except they exist all over. I have a paralegal whom I use. Um, she works on her own. Um, when I need to mail large amounts of documents, which is often true for bankruptcy law, you know, maybe 100 creditors, there's a website that does it. I, all I have to do is upload the, the PDF document with an with a mailing list, the addresses in Excel, they take care of it for me at a very reasonable cost. Um, judges copies. So I, the system gets more and more refined and I don't miss a beat. And I've gotten to the point where I'm more efficient than attorneys here doing the, the right thing uh, with an office. So uh, yeah, and it's it's been learning a lot. And I've actually drawn up a document because so many other attorneys are like, Wait, how are you doing this? Um, and it's, uh, it's just about using these resources. Yeah. I like that you mentioned you worked up to it too. Like, all right, I'm taking one week trip to Ireland to test this out. I'm scared, you know, okay. 
it didn't go bad. It actually went fairly well. What was the roadblock? Oh, it was this. I didn't have my laptop. Okay, next time, as you mentioned, let me refine it, bring my laptop. And just making it easier and easier and easier. What would you say is the is still the biggest obstacle or roadblock that you run into if something's happening while you're traveling versus if you're back in LA? Because I have an inkling of what the answer might be, but I, I could be totally wrong. So I want to hear from you first. Yeah, your inkling is um, if I have to appear on court on an emergency basis. Um, and the type of law I practice, which is business law, real estate, and, and bankruptcy, it rarely, rarely is an emergency hearing. But there are a few ways to handle it. And this is where thinking ahead and coming up with plans are involved. Um, there's something called court calls in which you can actually call into court as an attorney. And a lot of attorneys are actually here in LA use it because they don't want to sit in traffic or they have got too much work to do. They don't want to spend two hours in traffic when they can sit in their office and call in. So first first thing is um, I can call in the, to court. That I could do that on an emergency basis or even on a routine hearing. In other words, where you don't have to do heavy litigation, a status conference, something like that. I've called in from Ireland. I've called in from France. I mean, we're yeah, I was going to say, what's the craziest place you've called in from? Do you have one uh, yeah, that sticks out? Yeah, probably sitting sitting uh, in my rental car with the heater on in Iceland. Um, you know, um, and it went fine. Uh, but... Uh, and then the other thing, I, there are two other backup options. There's um, other attorneys who are friends of mine. Call them up. Do me a favor. I'll pay them to do it. Uh, we back each other up on vacation. Or the third option is um, there are also appearance attorney services. So in other words, a service I could tell them and they'll they'll find someone and send them. So I've never had a problem with this. In fact, I've never had to resort to options two or three. I've always handled it, been able to court call. Um, what about time zones? That was my other inkling. What a, you know? Because like, let's say you are in Taiwan and you're 13 hours difference, or even in Europe, you know, you're six, seven hours. Does that matter as much in the stuff that you're doing? Or is it like, hey, I can still do it during my day wherever I am, as long as it's ahead of, you know, the day it has to be done back in the States? Mm -hmm. Yeah, time zones matter a lot in there for phone calls and court appearances, certainly that are on a schedule. And it's, it's not unusual for me to have to get up at two or three in the morning for a call, a conference call and appearance. It's just one of the the hazards of, of what not a hazard, but and an a, a small annoyance, like big deal. So I'm up at three. I'm in the Republic of Georgia. You know, I have a conference call at 5 p.m. And I forget what the time difference is. Forgive me. Forgive me if it's wrong. But uh, I think I had to be up at 3 a.m. for this conference call. You know, it's small downside. Um, but you mentioned an interesting upside um, is that I'm ahead of L.A. because L.A. is pretty, pretty behind the, the rest of the time zones. Um, it's quite often that um, – I'm able to work during the day wherever I am. And for instance, I spend a lot of time in Paris. Um, and so I'll work, I'll work a normal day in Paris. And then they're just getting up in LA, uh, you know, at 6 a.m., uh, 6 p.m., uh, sorry, 3 p.m. there. And the workday starts at 6 p.m. there. And my clients wake up to their work finished. Um, you know, I, and in fact, I just had a case recently where I had to get a motion filed the very next day. And if I were in LA, I'd probably have to be up most of the night. But, you know, uh, I just went to bed at the normal time in Paris, woke up and did the work. The motion was prepared and ready to go for the client to sign by the time he was up in the morning. 
I, I always oh. love that about being in Europe as well. Like, let's say, you know, I'm last minute with a blog post or, or a podcast episode, which thankfully we're not really anymore. But, you know, in the beginning days, I'd be like, this is great. I have a seven hour head start. No one's going to know. They're going to think it got up way early, you know, and it was just I'm done. Like it's 3 p.m. I've done all the work. And, you know, for everyone else who's waking up in the U.S., it's 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 ready for them. So I'm with you like Europe being ahead other than maybe calls if you have to take that and it's your evening and you want to go out for dinner or something. Typically, I, I'm enjoying being ahead. It, it's nice. And with you in L.A., you know, your home office in L.A., yeah, you're almost always going to be ahead of L.A. time. Yeah. Um, one uh, one thing I got to be aware of is um, going out during the weekdays. So if I'm going to go out and I'm going to have a beer, fine. But it's business day. Someone calls me and I'm, you know, it can't be like three beers in. But um, another thing, too, is um, being polite to the people I'm with uh, there because my, my friends are completely understand when I have to step out and take a call when I'm out to dinner with them. But if it's someone I know less well, uh, I have to warn them. And like, I'm sorry, you know, it's business hours in L.A., so please don't think I'm rude if I'm checking my phone mm. and step out and make a call. What would you say to people who are, are in a similar situation as you were? Like they're in a profession – and this is speaking generally now, you know, they're in a profession that they don't they don't think or isn't common for being location independent. And they they obviously don't want to give up their career. They've either worked hard to get there or they are working hard to, to move on up. But they're saying, yeah, I I want to do a similar thing. I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to live in Paris half the year or, you know, be able to hang out in Thailand and Taiwan. What could you, because that's why I wanted to have you on so much, like what could you tell them again? It's going to be different for each profession, but from a general perspective of how maybe they should start feeling it out a little bit. Build up to it. Uh, just like I did. The story I was t telling about Ireland is, you know, you don't have to go away for four, six weeks at a time. Start with a week on um, and bring your laptop and see how it goes. You know, have tell someone where you're going, have a backup just in case. Feel it out. Um, the fear generally isn't real. Um, you can handle pretty much anything. Uh, the uh, other thing, too, is uh, be a professional. You're still a professional. Um, make sure you're, you're still doing the quality work. You're abiding by the rules of your profession, whatever that is. Uh, as I said, there are things I had to watch out for in the laws to how I sign my declarations. Um, and, um, there is, um, for instance, if finance would be another profession I used to work in investment banking, um, there are some rules about what you can do in, in and out of the country as far as trading, be aware of those. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, don't be scared. I think I had it in my head that I was trying to get away with something and it's not true. Um, I'm providing excellent service for my clients. They're very happy. Um, I'm just doing it from elsewhere. I, I kind of think of it as the equivalent to having kids, you know, like parents all the time take time to go to their kids' plays, their baseball games, their go to school, take them to the doctor. And because that's an accepted part of society, people are okay with that. I think, you know, travel is a different thing for me. Um, and uh, it's, it's also balancing that with life and also being um, a professional while you're traveling. So again, my advice is work up to it. Yeah, I think you're so right with this idea of being scared of stuff. You know, you think of everything that can go wrong. And then when you go and you do it and, and for some people, you know, if you're really scared of going away, maybe you just do it from your home, right? Like if you've gone in the office every day, maybe you just say, I'm going to take three days off and do it from home. 
And, you know, that, that'd be like the tiniest step because then you could like zoom into the office if you really need to. You'll probably find out that 90% of the stuff, you know, again, each profession is different. You, you're not going to miss being in the office for, you know, um, and like you said, build up, build up, build up, have backup plans and then, yeah, have some sort of balance. I think what I've been struck by, by all the different types of people we've talked to have been able to go location independent and, and haven't maybe started their own business, but have even worked for other people or, or worked in a company is that normally when they are scared to tell their boss or, or anyone, like in your case, maybe your clients that you're traveling and you're doing this, they're scared to do it. And the reaction they get is the exact opposite is people thinking that's amazing. You know, like they're usually most people are, are champions of that. Like, wow, you get to do all this. I wish I could do that, but I can't. And, and maybe even help change their mind a little bit. You mentioned some attorneys that you know, that are, now asking you, how can I do this? You're being a little bit of a role model for them. So the people out there that are sitting there saying, my, oh, my boss would never go for this. There's no way. You don't know until you ask. And then, of course, when you are given permission or you do get a chance, as you said, Mark, just over deliver, right? Do the best you possibly can and show them it's possible because that's going to speak for itself then. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, and I should mention, too, that I'm traveling about um, a little more than half the year. So you had asked me about scheduling. Um, I come back to Los Angeles between trips, and I spend about a month here for a couple reasons. Um, if I need to go to court for heavy litigation, it's important to for me to be before the judge if I'm doing um, a trial or a big hearing. Um, so I make sure to be here for that. I schedule my trips around it. Uh, and the other thing is to um, networking. Um, this only works as long as I continue to get new clients. And so I come here and um, I'm in Los Angeles right now. I'm doing lunches, dinners, uh, making sure people um, know about me. But basically, uh, at this point, I've been doing this for 12 years. Um, people trust me. I've built a good reputation. Um, and I think anyone who uh, knows what I'm doing and my lifestyle who may have been um, hesitant at first, uh, I've proven, um, you know, more than capable and, um, they trust me. So that's a big part of it too. How far in advance are you scheduling out your trips? Like, are you doing it 12 months in advance and you're saying, all right, I know I have these cases that are coming up, you know, in a couple months and I have to be here. So I'm going to plan my trips around, or is it a little more spur of the moment based on certain things that come up for you? Yeah, it's a little more, it's a little, it's spur of the moment. I mean, I, I have an idea what I'm doing the next couple months. Um, it's also not unusual if I have to move a trip around or cancel, cancel one. i actually, I've only had to cancel one on one occasion, um, because of, because of work that came in. But basically I, I just kind of think about what I'm doing next month. Fortunately with flights and everything, um, they're super cheap and easy to move on. You don't have to plan it in advance anymore. Yeah. When did you start getting this desire to live this life style like that basically where you're saying all right law is a part of me like i like that i like this career but it's not the end all and be all i'm not gonna vacation i'm gonna make this other thing that i love travel a lifestyle as well when did you have that desire to do it because you say you've been doing law for about 12 years and you've been doing the nomadic thing for what'd you say four five years about oh, four years since 2016 yeah, yeah so when did you get the like when did travel become a bug that you said, all right, I'm not going to be able to shake this, even if, you know, it took some time to build into it. Yeah, I, I've always been a, a traveler. My father uh, gave me the bug. He had been to 106 countries in his life. And uh, 
um, I, I really kind of focused on my profession at first. And, you know, I just really realized that there was nothing I was as passionate about as traveling. I just absolutely love it. And it kind of struck me in 2015, I think, that I need to do as much of it as possible. Um, and so I really also, I also realized that because of technology since that trip to Ireland in, in 2011, that it was becoming more and more possible. So I decided to, to focus on it and, um, you know, make it my lifestyle. Um, I, I gave up my apartment in Los Angeles in um, 2017, so three years ago, became a, a, an official nomad. Uh, a lot of it was because of costs. Um, I had been living in a great apartment downtown at a bargain for about 1600 a month, which is a bargain for L.A. if you're listening anywhere else in the country. Um, and they renovated the building, and we're going to – if I wanted to get my old apartment back, it would, the rent would go up by $1,000 a month, 2600 and that was ridiculous. So I decided to try the nomad thing. And like everything else, I was terrified at first. Um, I got rid of almost everything I own, kept the essentials, but got a storage space um, nearby. Um, and it was at first renting Airbnbs in Los Angeles whenever I came back. So in other words, I wasn't paying to have an empty apartment in Los Angeles while I was elsewhere, which is a big deal. Because if you think about it, if you're traveling, you're paying for a hotel or Airbnb or whatever in wherever, you're also paying for an empty apartment back home. That was no longer the case for me. Um, and uh, I had a feeling something would shake out when I was started this plan. And indeed, a friend of mine with a two-bedroom apartment in my old building, uh, her roommate moved out, and she asked me if I'd like to come and stay there when I'm in town. So she's great, and we have a great arrangement. Um, and uh, I only pay for this room when I'm here. Great location, covers parking. I mean, there's pool and jacuzzi and everything. It's a, The rent is very reasonable. Um, and when I leave, again, I'm not paying for it. So, um, you know, it's been the focus. This, I've made travel a priority. But I also realized that I love my profession. I like what I do um, as a lawyer. I'm um, also a business consultant. I really, just traveling to, for the sake of traveling, sitting around in coffee shops and bars, I mean, it sounds exciting if that's all you, if you only get two weeks a year, but it gets a little dull after a while. I like to be productive. I like to do something for put my skills to use and feel like I'm, I'm useful to somebody and I like what I do. So I tried to find a way to, to get that balance and, and I found it and I, I really enjoy it. And I've also found a way to, um, use, incorporate my travels, what I do when I travel, I, I network. So I'm going to networking events wherever, and I've met some really interesting people. So maybe I'm in Hong Kong. I look for a professional meet, uh, meetup or Internations has a lot of those. Um, also, I'm a, I'm a CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. They have uh, chapters all over the world, uh, and I find events. So this does two things for three things for me. I meet interesting people. I get new business out of this, either as an attorney or business consultant. Um, and it increases the network for my clients who are maybe more international-minded of people I know around the world who, are, um, who needs these resources. Uh, and it's a load of fun. I mean, you really get into society. Because I think when we travel, we think so much that it's about the museums and the restaurants and the bars and the old ancient things from a thousand years ago. Yes, totally. That's cool. But um, if you think about it, like modern life in these countries is also what you're going to see. 
And when you're getting into business uh, of what people are doing now, you learn about what's truly going on there in modern life. Yeah, I think that's so important if you're going to be nomadic. As you mentioned, like for you, it's about half the year. For us, you know, we're, we don't call ourselves nomadic anymore. We're just location independent, right? So we're traveling about a third of the year-ish, you know. And I think when you aren't traveling that much or more, it becomes like, it's nice to have a mission. And and by a mission, it doesn't have to be big, some big thing. It's like, hey, I'm going to go to these meetups. I'm going to meet these people. Yeah, it's not just going to be all about me, me, me. Like, yes, you have all these residual benefits, but you are saying, I'm going to actually dive in a little bit. I'm not just going to be there as a tourist. I'm going to spend some time meeting people, you know, and that we know that that's what drives, at least for you and I, you know, obviously drives the love of travel is the people you're meeting and the stories behind it and hearing how they're different and then also hearing how they're similar. And so I'm with you that it's nice to get out and experience stuff in a different way versus just going to museums, going to coffee shops, going to bars. I mean, I love all that kind of stuff. Um, But actually seeing real life happen and, and even cooler if you're then connecting with people who have a similar passion, which in your case, whether it be law, whether it be being a CFA, whatever, you know, you have a kindred spirit there. You have a bond because you know they're similar to you. They just happen to live in Paris or happen to live in Bangkok or what have you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly so right. You talked about living in Paris. So when did that decision come about? Like, why did that decision come? And, and what does that look like for you? Oh, like like most Americans, I, I'm just going to admit I'm guilty about having this affection for Paris. I mean, it's you know Hemingway and all that stuff. I'm just going to admit it. Um, and so uh, I started going to Paris as as an adult again in 2016. I hadn't been in almost 20 years, and I think the reason why I avoided it was because um, I knew I'd just fall in love with the city. And, you know, being from L.A., like most people here, I'm a, f- a fan of film and uh, foreign films are, are interesting to me. And I realized I watch a lot of French films and I knew a lot of the actors. And so uh, I really uh, a friend of mine gave me an excuse to go to go to Paris because he was going to hike the Camino. This other attorney, in fact, this this guy, he's, uh, you know, in his 50s, he never traveled outside the U.S., saw what I was doing. Um, I think he wanted somebody to come with him on his first trip. He was going to hike the Camino, asked me if I'd meet him in Paris. He was going to start there. So I came to Paris for two weeks uh, before it was time to meet him. And exactly that. I just absolutely fell in love with the city. I met some people. Um, the first weekend I was there through a meetup who have become very close friends of mine to this day, uh, which is incredible. Uh, and, uh, also, I spoke a little French, and um, I wanted my French to get better because I was tired of being one of those Americans who spoke only one language. Um, and so I focused very heavily on my French and uh, got in more into the culture through volunteering and started coming back, coming back, coming back, uh, realizing that um, I fit in better there than um, I think I ever felt. Uh, was more comfortable there than I ever felt in the United States. And the more time uh, I spent there, the more roots I formed. And so I kept coming back for longer and longer periods. And um, I just applied for my French long stay visa uh, a couple weeks ago. So I guess I'll be spending more time there. Uh, and uh, again, it, it works out as far as professionally because um, 
I've made some business contacts there. Uh, it's obviously a first world super connected country with uh, great co-working spaces. And uh, uh, I'm very happy there. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Similar situation, like where you have an a, apartment or is it or are you renting still like you'll go and find different places each time that you go over? I, I found a regular place that I go in Paris that I uh, that I only pay for when I'm there. Uh, I think the owner uh, spends most of his time on the coast. And so he likes it that he's got me um, that rents his place at a reasonable rate. I mean, it's still more than I think I'd pay if I rented an apartment for a whole year. But Paris is is a lot cheaper than Los Angeles. I mean, people think of Paris as expensive. And yes, if you're going there as a tourist and for a week and you're indulging in the fine restaurants and the Eiffel Tower, yes, it's expensive. But it's a, everything's about a third cheaper than Los Angeles. So I'm staying, I'm staying in a in a one bedroom apartment uh, near uh, Gare de Lyon for uh, fifteen hundred euros a month, which again is expensive. Expensive if you're in Paris, but for, for someone from LA, oh, that's a bargain. Man, you're uh, you're you're an expert yeah. at finding these people who allow you to just pay when you're there. We gotta we <laughs> <laughs> just just find the right people, pay when you're there, come and go as you please. That's that's awesome, and I I think that that's as you mentioned a pretty it's pretty neat to hear you talk about why you decided to go there and and feeling more comfortable there and just returning right because i think sometimes with travel and i'm guilty of this and you might be guilty of this too because we're going to get into some of your epic adventures in just a second it i always want to see different more faster you know this and that but there are places that you're gonna each person's gonna fall in love with for for different reasons and for you as paris you know and there's something to be said for going back and whether you decide to live there half the year or part of the year or whether you just, you know, you decide to travel back there, it as you know, now with kids, too, it's it's a little different for us. But there's it's kind of nice to have the familiarity as well. Right. Not a place that you grew up and not a place that that you've lived forever. But to say, you know, you could drop me in Chiang Mai and it's like it, it feels like a second home. And, you know, and yes, I want to go see more, but it's there's something to be said for that for that feeling as well that you get in Paris. And I think a lot of times I overlook that because I want to push to the new things. But then I find myself somewhere I've been before. I'm like, this is cool that I can feel at home somewhere that that isn't technically home. You're right. Uh, and it's it's actually I'm getting the best of both worlds because I, I, I'm guilty as well, wanting the new thing and traveling to new places. But also, as you noted, you sort of miss that depth, that actually really, that ability to really get to know a place. And for Paris, I have that. So I can, I've gotten, you know, formed some really great roots there, relationships, and um, volunteer there. Uh, and I got a really great network, group of people. I'm a member of some, some clubs there. Uh, but so that satisfies that part. And then I can still go explore my other trips around the world where I'm moving constantly and doing something adventurous. And it's a different thing. And sometimes in those other places, I miss the ability to get deeper. But of course, that takes time. And uh, as I said, I've I've been able to use like, internations, meetups, CFA society, at least get a glimpse, and also volunteering as well. Uh, when you get to these places, to see beyond the the tourist um, the tourist sites. What, what um, do you use for volunteering? What what type of things do you do, and what is your sites or resources that you would recommend? Um, well, specifically in Paris, there's um, Benanova, which is um, 
which basically is good for people there short term because what you could do is you could sign it, find different events on the calendar and sign up for them. They could be a one hour, three hours, a full day. So in other words, you're not making a long-term commitment. Um, but for other places in the world, um, I've been just kind of Googling it, <laughs> lowly planet. Um, oftentimes you get to a hostel and of, as you know, it's posted on the wall. This is happening. You can go to that, um, asking around, um, it's become more and more popular amongst nomads and, you know, uh, long, long-term tourists, uh, to go do that stuff. So it's not hard to find. Um, and also it's very, very satisfying too, because you're doing more than just taking, not uh, taking in their culture. Of course, you're spending money. That's what they want. But that's the old model, right? You're a wallet to them and and stuff. But, you know, when you volunteer, you can actually – it's a win-win. You go in. You get this experience. You feel good about themselves. And they get your your help, your, your benefits. And it doesn't need to be, you know, a three-week commitment. It could be an hour, two hours a day, um, or it could be three weeks. It's up to you. But uh, I really recommend it. And it will add another facet to your travel and – God, the, you know, there's so many big problems in the world right now. Volunteering is a good way to ignore those and just work on the small ones. Yeah, that's well said. Well said. Just do what you can in that moment and, and take from that what you will, like, you know, good feelings and, and relationships and helping other people out. And pe- other people, you know, are going to take that away as well. And, and I honestly, it's probably also beneficial for the people who you've served to see, hey, this is a person who's not from here, who's going out of their way. Like, that's an inspiring thing, too. You know, not that you're on vacation necessarily because you're there longer term, but you're taking time out of your day and and you're not there every day to go and do something versus, you know, someone who's there and, you know, maybe to them they, they have more time. You know, instead of you being out exploring the newest cafe, you're volunteering. And I think that that speaks volumes for other people too. Um, you talked about some of your crazy trips and you've had a few. Um, first, on, I want to talk about Pakistan and Iraq, uh, two countries that most people would say are off limits and sometimes might even be off limits, uh, technically. How were you able to get into both of those and what were, you know, we can break them up if you want to talk one versus the other, because obviously they're two distinct cultures and places. But in, I think in people's minds, it's like, these are scary. You know, we hear the news, Pakistan, Iraq, getting in and what it was like, and then surprises from your experiences there. Yeah, uh, these places are, are opening up um, and they're they're safe in um, in many in certain regions. And this is uh, where the research comes in. Um, first of all, I do not travel the war zones. I know there are some crazy travelers who go out and do that. Um, I am not interested in killing myself, but I am interested in visiting places before they get too touristy. Uh, and Pakistan is that right now. And I know I'm not helping it, but I'm helping them by bringing in more tourists. Um, God, it's wonderful, especially when you get up into the mountains in the Northeast. Um, the, uh, the Karakoram Highway uh, going from Istanbul to the Chinese border is, is fantastic. I rented a car and Drove it. I mean, I'm not sure I recommend renting a car because it was probably the worst traffic, uh, the, the hardest driving I've ever done in my life. Um, aside from it being on the driving on the opposite side of the road and having to shift with my left hand, but uh, it, you know, it, it, it's really interesting up there uh, and perfectly safe. Um, the people are super friendly, and in fact, um, because of the international image of Pakistan. 
the locals hate it. They don't want to be viewed as dangerous. They don't want to be viewed as terrorists. They, they, so many of them came up to me and said, well, how's Pakistan viewed in the world? And I'm like, well, you know, I'll be honest. A lot of people think I'm crazy to be here and they know it. They know it. And first of all, I think they're nice people to begin with, but they're really trying to overcompensate for it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I have a theory anyways. I think the vast, vast majority of people anywhere in the world are just like us. They want to go to work. They want to go to school, raise their kids. Probably like it's some small, small percentage of crazies out there that's causing problems in whatever country. Um, and indeed, like, uh, it, it's inexpensive. Uh, the scenery is stunning. The food is good. Uh, great hiking. The I think the British backpacking association something like that recommended it it's like backpacking destination for 2018 or something um what what you'll find surprising is just how comfortable the travel is so you know like most of us we post i post on facebook i post on instagram we're like you're nuts and meanwhile as they're commenting you're nuts i'm sitting there in my very nice hotel for 20 bucks a night with a view over this one the hunza valley drinking a cup of tea, you know, and it's like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in such danger right now. Right. Like um, who, who's nuts? You're sitting in two hours of LA traffic, <laughs> you know, commuting into work. And here I am yeah. in the, one of the more peaceful places in the world. Right. Yeah. And in fact, a uh, quick aside, I was in um, Tajikistan in the Afghan border and I posted that on Facebook. Um, and a friend of mine direct messaged me, a friend of mine from high school and said, are you all right? as I'm sitting there splitting a bottle of wine with like three other travelers, you know, next to a wonderful river. Yeah, I'm fine. No problem. Um, but anyways, yeah. So back to, back to Pakistan. Uh, yeah, they're, they're really making a push for tourism. Uh, Peshawar, I guess two years ago was a little bit sketchy. Now everyone's like, you'll have no problem. You'll have no problem. I had no problem. I go there and you know, when you visit the places before they get to tourists, you have a real legit experience. I mean, people are staring at me. Uh, I guess I, I sort of got to experience what it must be like to be a movie star or a very beautiful person because everyone's staring at me. Everyone wanted to meet me. Everyone wanted to take pictures with me. Um, I'd make friends in a second. Um, it was really, really cool. Um, Iraq. So I was in Kurdistan, um, which is the northern part of Iraq. And so the Kurds have an autonomous region out there. They're very good at controlling their borders. Um, and so that area was quite safe and it was a few weeks before, uh, Trump made the decision to not support them anymore. So they, they really loved Americans cause we had been working with them for years. I'm not sure how that changed, uh, a couple of weeks later, I assume it's still safe to travel there. Um, it was really easy, safe travel again. Um, you know, not much of a tourist infrastructure yet. So you're getting a legit experience. Um, one morning I got up to get breakfast in the bazaar in one of the towns. And, um, I walked into this place that served this yogurt honey thing. And so I, no one spoke English. So I just pointed at it and the guy knew what I wanted, but then he started making gestures like I was doing something wrong and I don't know what it was. I mean, he was polite about it. And he finally pointed to a piece of bread and I didn't understand, but then, uh, he sent someone out to go get me a piece of bread because they didn't serve it there. And I figured out what the deal was. Everyone goes to the bakery first, buys a piece of bread, and then goes to the yogurt and honey place. 
So the next day, I was an expert. I get up in the morning, go to the bakery, wait in line, get my fresh hot piece of bread, and then walk into the yogurt place and, and get my yogurt and honey. Ah, it was wonderful. Those are experiences you're really going to only get if you're going to places that the tourists haven't, I don't want to say ruined, but made, made, made it like a Western comfortable place yet. Right. So, yeah. Right. When you're doing that and you're traveling, what is the typical way that, that you are traveling? Are you staying in hotels, hostels, Air, Airbnbs? Obviously, it's going to depend on the era, but I'm, I'm speaking specifically to maybe the more off-the-beaten-path places, Pakistan, Iraq. Um, and then how are you getting around? Is it public transport? Are You, you said you rented a car in Pakistan. Um, yeah, what is it like when you're going to those the places that are places that when you post on Facebook, people are like, wait, you're where? How is your travel style? All three of those. And it really, as you said, it really depends on the, on the location that I'm going to. Uh, I really try to take public transport as much as possible. I avoid tours as, all, almost all the time unless I have to. I mean, I went to Chernobyl uh, last month and you have to go by tour. So voila, I went by tour. Um, but um, public transport, if I can, it's the cheapest and you get to meet people uh, easily. Uh, I will rent a car if I need that flexibility. And oftentimes it's really cheap. Um, God, I think I, I rented a car in, in, uh, where was I? Oh, in Ukraine or no, 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 no. It was Albania and, uh, just last month. And I think it was only like $14 a day or something like that. Um, and it's also, it's also fun to try and negotiate the stuff on your own. Um, in Pakistan, you could take the bus, but you know you have to spend a lot of time waiting. Um, some people rented motorbikes, which I think is really cool. Um, renting a car was super interesting. I think driving from Istanbul to the Chinese border was was a lot of fun. If you like driving, which I do, um, it's a challenge. It's challenging driving, both because of the insane traffic. I went through Abbottabad, which is the town where. Osama bin Laden was hiding out um, when uh, the SEAL team got him. And the, it was the worst traffic I've ever seen. I mean, I just wanted to abandon the car in the street. But um, it was challenging. And once you got past it, it was beautiful mountain scenery and great driving. And, you know, if you if you like to drive a stick shift, you're, you know, it's so much fun. Uh, as far as your question about hotels, same thing. Like, um, if I could find a cheap hotel for, you know, 20, 25 bucks, great. That was the case in Pakistan and also Albania. I mean, four-star hotels there were like $35. Um, hostels, uh, as I've gotten older, I'm less inclined to the room filled with 10 people. I will do it if I have to, but a lot of hostels have um, offer you rooms now, either with an attached bath or one down the hall for cheap. And I love hostels. a great way to meet people. Airbnbs, certainly if I'm staying uh, long-term, um, I went and spent a week in Taipei, got an Airbnb for that. Um, that was really convenient. Um, travel most of the, uh, mostly is pretty comfortable. I don't torture myself unless I have to. If I'm doing a hike or, for instance, when I was in Papua New Guinea three years ago, there is not a comfortable $20 hotel nearby. There is, um, you know, I'm on the Sepik River and uh, I'm staying at this place next to the police station for 10 bucks a night. It's a filthy mattress. The bathroom is outside on the edge of the jungle. I went to go in the middle of the night, and there was a frog waiting for me. Uh, but it's part of the experience. I don't mind, and it's cool. So, you know, I'm not going to, I'll stay in a nice place when it's available, 
But if um, I need to stay in the mountain, the hut, because I'm doing a hike up a mountain, great. I love that too. Yeah. It's, it's whatever situation you're in, either making the best of it or making it part of the experience, right? Because sometimes that is, as you said, in Papua New Guinea, like that's part of the experience. And me and Mar, when we went, there was no mid-range option. It was either really fancy, which we weren't paying for, or really divey. And, you know, you might not want to do that for weeks on an end, but it it, it is that's when you go to places that are less traveled, you don't have that yeah, whatever we want to call Western comfortable mid-range level, right? Like in <laughs> yeah. Thailand, you could 20 bucks, you could have your pick of basically any type of amenities you want, right? And in, in like a three-star type way. Um, I want to talk to you because you just talked about Eastern Europe a bit and you just got back from there. You introduced me to a new area that I had never heard of. And I love maps. So when you put this in the in like the little bio, it's like Transnistria. Like, what am I? What is this? Is new? I had to look it up. Um, so I appreciate that. What were your biggest takeaways from exploring uh, Eastern Europe a bit, and and some of like the more again remote, off the beaten path places where you talked about? You know, you just kind of touched a little bit on Albania. What what did you really like from there? What was yeah? How did it compare when it comes to you know your life in Paris and things like that? First of all, the the surprise about Eastern Europe is just how much it's become like Western Europe. Um, it's very comfortable travel. I mean, I'm not going to inflate this at all. It's very cheap. I mean, beers are two and a half bucks. Most meals cost me five, six dollars in you know in a restaurant. As I said, hotels. I mean, you know, budget travelers, ten bucks you get a cheap hotel, thirty five bucks you're in a four star hotel. Um, Getting around is easy. I did it by train, rent a car a few times. Um, it's really easy um, and safe and pretty. Uh, and as far as surprises, out of the way things. So um, went the did the Chernobyl tour. I don't know how the way that, that is anymore. Uh, apparently, they're getting 1,200 tourists a month now. But go while you can because they've now banned you from going into the old buildings in that town that was abandoned. Uh, the tour guides are are sort of skirting that and letting you in. But it's not going to be too long before you really can't go in at all because it's getting sort of dangerous. Um, so go while you can. Um, Transnistria, as you mentioned, was super interesting. So what that, that is is a breakaway republic that thinks it's its own country. Uh, it's only recognized by three other countries, I think, that are also breakaway countries, like Nagorno-Karabakh in um, in uh, Armenia. Banding oh, together, Armenia. breakaway countries banding together <laughs> to give give some semblance of uh, yeah respectability, right? Right. Yeah, they have their own currency. I had to go through a border checkpoint. I mean, officially, they're still part of Moldova, but. The reason they're a breakaway country is because they really love the Soviet Union. Um, they think they're in 1983. Uh, um, and I went and stayed in this great old Soviet-style hotel. I mean, the TV literally must have been from 1983. It was so awesome. Um, and the, their currency is called the ruble, and they have these big, brutalist monuments all throughout the uh, the capital. Uh, it's not a big country. Uh, and, you know, there I rented a car and I was driving through the countryside on the way to the capital. Every town's got this steel and concrete sign of like the powerful Soviet uh, empire type thing. Um, really, really interesting. And I, I admit, I should have done a couch surfing there. I was running a little short on time. I had to move on. But I think that would have been a really great place to meet some locals and, and hear what they have to say in their point of view, you know, given, given the situation there. 
what how long are you usually spending in different areas like you know obviously in eastern europe you were you're bumping around a bit do you tip do you have a preferred amount of time for a trip usually yeah i usually go away from four to six weeks um i think that's a good amount of time and uh you know counterintuitive the longer i go away the better it is for for my handling my business while i'm traveling because if i have to take a day or a few days to work then you know, it's fine. I, I can stop. It's okay. Uh, it re- take, how much time I spend in each location really depends on where I am, how I'm feeling, the weather, what I want to do. Maybe I need to get back for some, back to LA for something. Um, you know, maybe I don't. Uh, it's, it's, I have that kind of freedom and flexibility. So um, yeah, there's, there's really no rule. Yeah. But four to six weeks, it seems like a, a bit of a sweet spot for you to be away and then, yeah, head back to L.A. or, or I guess, Paris, for that matter. Um, one of the cool trips that my buddy has always wanted to do and wants me to do with him, and you're the first person I think, I think that I've got to talk about with this, is the Trans-Siberian Railroad in the winter. Because when he said to me, he's like, let's do the Trans-Siberian and let's do it in the winter, I thought, um, why? <laughs> you know, like, other. I mean, it's an experience and I want to hear about it, but I, I, I mean... It's dark and cold, and I mean, I guess everything you would imagine the trans Siberian in the winter. So, what made you decide to do it? And yeah, kind of same question, like surprises on that, or things that you thought it would be like, and then it it was different. Then, well, uh, Siberia in the winter. I mean, what is Siberia known for? It's winters. So why would you go during the summer? You know, you're not seeing the real Siberia. And I, I understand. People are going a lot during the summer taking Trans-Siberian. It's supposed to be warm and nice. And also a lot of mosquitoes, I heard. But, um, yeah, you you want to see Siberia in the winter so you can see what it's like. Um, and it's beautiful. The rivers are frozen There's to the point that trucks are driving over them and using them as highways. Uh, the countryside really has this you know cold, white view. If you're going to visit Soviet nostalgia, which I was doing, then you're really seeing it. Um, and getting the feel for it. Um, also, too, you know, I really wasn't that cold as far as like a matter of survival. I, first of all, I brought the right clothes, you know, heavy down jacket and, and the long underwear. And so, you know, you're out and about, you're in cities, uh, you get, I get cold, I can go into a cafe or whatever. Um, obviously, you're limited on what hiking you can do, um, you know, which is something I really like to do, but uh, I'm not on that trip generally. Um, the trains are super heated. Uh, in fact, I have a friend who's Russian and I asked her before I went, um, how cold would it be on the train? And she said, not at all. Bring shorts and a t-shirt. Uh, they overheat it. And indeed as everyone, as soon as they get on the train, they strip down in the shorts and a t-shirt and it's like you're in Bermuda. Um, and so, uh, the, the trains are, I understand getting better. I was on a mixture of old and new trains, the old trains, the bathroom's filthy. You got to deal with that for days at a time. Fine. No problem. It's better being a guy, obviously. Um, newer ones have um, a better system and uh, showers on board. So the old ones expect not to take a shower for a few days. Uh, it's inexpensive. Um, you basically are in a cabin of either two to four people, four people second class, that's the way I did it. Um, most people are not on the train the entire length. Most people are there just for anywhere from a few hours to a day and a half just to get between cities. 
Because if anyone's going from Vladivostok to Moscow, they're going to fly. It's cheaper and it's faster and more comfortable. Um, uh, you, uh, I got off along the way. I visited Irkutsk, which is near Lake Baikal, and that was beautiful. It's the it, 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 there's an island out there. Um, during the winter, you could actually drive to it. Um, otherwise, you could take a hovercraft. The ice isn't strong enough. Um, I grew up. I, I, I played hockey when i was younger and for my whole life i always was relegated to rinks for the first time in my life i i was rented skates there and i could skate literally for miles it was wonderful um and i also visited ekaterinburg where the royal family was assassinated uh and ended up in moscow and then uh spent four days there uh and then four days in um st petersburg um and of course it's a lot cheaper i, I got a hotel in moscow Moscow near the Red Square for 40 bucks a night. I think during the summer, that same hotel is 200 a night. Um, but yeah, I really recommend the trip. Don't be a wimp about the weather. Just make sure you have the, the right clothes. But, you know, I think folk, people focus too much on the weather when they're, they're traveling like that. Like it has to be a nice spring or summer day. You're going to Siberia for the Soviet atmosphere. Go do it. It's, it's super interesting. All right. Sold. Sold. Nick couldn't sell me on it. But you did, because <laughs> you've actually done it. And, and I think you are right. You know, the point you bring up of, obviously, it's different in the summer and the winter. But if you're going for Siberia and you want to experience Siberia, like, yeah, what do we think of Siberia? Cold, dark, snowy. And, uh, and you're going to get to see that on the Trans-Siberian. So, yeah, it's always a trip that I've wanted to do, uh, the Trans-Siberian in general. So you took, I, I guess, total, what, uh, like two weeks-ish to get? to get across if you were staying in Moscow and St. Petersburg and all? Um, that whole trip was five weeks and I actually started in Japan because I saw there was a ferry from Japan to Russia, the Vladivostok. And so I took that ferry and uh, let's see, Trans-Siberian did it. Yeah, over two weeks. Yeah. No, three weeks, let's say. Everything. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess about yeah, about four and a half weeks the whole trip right. was between cool. Japan and Russia. Yeah. Cool. Well, we talked about some of your trips. Do you have any that stick out in your mind, whether it be a, a specific trip or experience or just the place itself that that are top of your list that you just hold near and dear? Yeah, uh, I'd say the, the Trans-Siberian one that, that you just described really was between Japan and that trip was really sort of interesting. I find traveling in the winter more intimate, um, but really being an 80s kid, um, you know, and having a lot of nostalgia for it, as my friends know, listen to music and movies and seeing like the remnants of the Soviet Union and stuff, um, and traveling in that way, I, I really, it, it really kind of touched something for me. Uh, it was, it was very interesting. And also Iceland. I know Iceland's been popular for a while. I went late summer, early spring, um, so gorgeous i mean that place is like it's almost so unreal how amazing it is um the sense of peace and beauty i mean it was it was amazing i would definitely go back there i'm scared how just in the three years i've uh, since i've been there how 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 touristy it might have gotten but but that's been absolutely wonderful and then the other thing is africa um i've always had a thing for africa i grew up reading about the old-time african explorers you know richard burton and uh, Livingston and Henry Morton Stanley. And uh, after law school, I went and uh, took a nine-month trip through Africa. And I mean, just, you know, 
there's so many different things to see uh sahara and you know the the lakes in the east and um uh, the West Africa. I mean, I just love that continent, and it's you know, if you're an experienced traveler, it's 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 challenging in a good way. And in fact, that's my next trip. I'm off to uh, in two weeks to uh, to to, go to West Africa through Cote d'Ivoire and um, Liberia, Guinea, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, Gambia, and uh, Senegal. So. Okay. My favorite country that I've never been to, the Gambia. Love it. Love oh. it. I, I mean, only because I like the name The Gambia. And I think it's like, how many countries are shaped like a finger sticking into the side of a continent, right? So I don't know if there's anything cool to do there, I, I, but you'll let me know. Um, yeah, cool. So then what else? You mentioned that Africa trip coming up. Do you have anything else top of your list or on your hit list of saying like, all right, here's, you know, I've just been dreaming about this next place. Here's what I want, you know, here's where I'd go next if I could. Yeah, about three different areas. So I, I want to go to Saudi Arabia and the Horn of Africa in one trip. Uh, that's Eret Eritrea, uh, Djibouti. Um, I think I'm going to do that this fall. Uh, there's one of the major things to see in Saudi Arabia is currently under uh, construction, uh, renovation. So I really want to see, uh, see it when it opens this fall. Um, and it's just opening up the tourists. Uh, they started issuing visas just a few months ago. Uh, and um, the uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, it's a bit touch and go there. Yeah. So, I'll, <laughs> yeah, I really want to do this trip up the, the Congo from Kinshasa to Kisanjani, um, see how feasible that is. I'm a little bit worried about being able to stay connected on that trip. That's actually my biggest holdup. Uh, and then um, over in uh, South America, I'd like to go see Uruguay, Paraguay. Um, uh, I've been to Brazil and Argentina before, but I, I think I'd like to go back and see those again, do a trip through through those countries. Uh, obviously, the first two I mentioned are not too well visited, but yeah. a lot of stuff to do there. You mentioned this. I, I, I didn't ask you this earlier about um, staying connected. Do you ever take time off like like not just to like at all where you say all right I'm, i've got three or four weeks it's not just the weekend and i'm actually going to travel and i don't have to be connected no uh, i'm always i'm always working i mean it's a lifestyle i feel like you know i'm lucky to have the situation i have if, if i have to stop and work i think it's it's fine uh it, as i mentioned if i have if i want to do something more remote a hike or an island uh, try to fit it over a weekend so okay no, we really don't have time off. Yeah, interesting. All right, then the last question I have for you, like we ask almost every guest, I, I'd say every guest, but I'm sure I've missed it here and there. Biggest travel mishap that you've had? And I, I mean, you've gone to some cool, crazy places. You've done a lot of traveling. Do you have one that sticks out in your head? Yes, and in fact, this goes to um, to safety. People, people always ask me about, uh, you know, just be smart and follow the rules you do in a normal city, which is don't go rocking around at night by yourself generally. And that's what I did back in Rio de Janeiro uh, when I was young and stupid uh, in my early 20s, coming back from you know uh, a bar at 2 in the morning along the main street. Uh, and uh, I was mugged. And uh, the next night I did the same thing and I was mugged again. So <laughs> <laughs> No. No way. Okay. Yeah. So right. yeah, um, <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, it, was it? I mean, do you know? It, was it the same person? I mean, because... no, no, no. They 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 varied it, which I appreciated. Mm. Um, the first night, it was a it was a couple of uh, tall tall guys in probably their late teens, early twenties, 
Uh, and then the next day it was, uh, they were a little younger, but more of them. Um, so, and when I say mugged, I mean, it wasn't, you know, they didn't have a gun or a knife, you know, it's just like, you know, whatever, but what are you going to do? And so, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Two nights in a row. Wow. It was probably their younger brothers. Like they, they made off with your, uh, they're like, Hey, uh, there's this guy. If he happens to walk down the street again, uh, you guys go cut your teeth on him. And then, you know, younger brothers come out. Yeah, just brilliant doing it two nights in a row. But as I said, young and stupid. So okay. there you go. If you're worried about safety, just do logical things. So there you yeah. go. Awesome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me today and showing people that it's possible to have this professional life, one that you love, right? That, that you love your work, you love doing it, and still be able to travel and not just, you know, two weeks, three weeks vacation, let me take it easy. But I mean, you're out there traveling all over to places that, uh, as you mentioned, friends and family sometimes might be a little like, whoa, hold on, Mark, where are you going? Um, I love that you've been able to, to find that balance for you. And and especially that you also said, take it easy, start slow, but but that it is possible and it's probably a lot easier than most people are making out to in their mind. So I just love that you tell people you don't have to choose between you know your career and travel. You can definitely have both. If people want to follow you or find you, what's the best place for them to do that? Well, I, I have my professional website, but I'm not sure that's any good for travel. Um, but uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I've written a few books. Uh, my latest book is called He Who Fights With Monsters. It's on Amazon. There's an author page. Um, my Instagram account um, you can, is public. Uh, you can follow me there. Uh, M-A-R-C-W-E-I-T-Z is the way you spell my name. It's Claire. Just put it into uh, Instagram and you'll find me. Uh, and you'll see my trips on there. Man, we didn't even talk about the books. We had so much to talk about travel. Real quick, before I let you go, sure. you've written three three books now. I, okay, when a, a, when do you find the time? And B, what is it about writing? Like on top of traveling, on top of law, on top of everything you're doing, why then go and, and write novels? Like what's the draw? These, these places I visit fire my imagination. And uh, I love making up stories about them. And, uh, you know, so I started writing uh, back in 2010. And these all my novels take place in these exotic places I visited. My first one's about uh, World War One in Africa, uh, in the Lake District. And uh, most people don't know about World War One down there. The second one um, takes place in Northern Europe, in, uh, in uh, Lithuania, in um, in Estonia, that area. And it's because I visited a, an old abandoned nuclear power plant in one of these old Soviet towns uh, that was built off the same plants as Chernobyl. And I'm like, wow, this would be a great place to set a, like a climatic scene uh, for a novel. And so I did. Uh, and uh, my third book, it takes place all over the world. It's about a, a billionaire who starts a, a charitable organization to assassinate corrupt world leaders. And so he is doing so in different places around the globe, um, in Africa, in South America, and uh, Central Europe. And so uh, they take place there. And um, it's just basically kind of a way to uh, really uh, use my imagination based off, off these sites. Awesome. Yeah, I, I completely like forgot we didn't even talk about the books because we were talking <laughs> about the professional life and balancing it and then the crazy travels and then on top of that you're writing novels yes yeah, so you just published the third one he who fights with monsters you can find all of your books on amazon correct is that the correct. best place for people to go find them 
Yep, absolutely. Awesome. And we will link all that up in the show notes, guys. We'll link up Mark's Instagram as well so you can go follow his travels there and uh, and the books and grab them and start reading them. I'm super excited to dive in uh, into the third one. I mean, I'll probably end up reading all three, but I'm definitely interested in this billionaire who sets up a charitable organization to assassinate world leaders. Like that little tagline, I'm like, sold. That's 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 an interesting uh, thought, especially now I have to talk to you and knowing how much you know about these areas. And obviously, it, it's pretty apparent the way you talk about them that you that you dive into it. You understand some of the history. You know, you you don't just come on a surface level. You're spending some time researching it. And then, of course, on the ground talking to people. So um, can't wait to read that, Mark. And thank you again for coming on. Um, it's been awesome chatting with you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor meeting you. Uh, thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Awesome. And we will link everything up, extrapackpns.com slash shows. Find this episode. You can get everything that Mark's doing um, in the show notes there. Casey will do that for you. And guys, thank you for tuning in for uh, today for the continued support that makes us number one ready to travel podcast. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you.